Please stand as we read from the Word of God. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel 9, beginning in verse 1 and going all the way through the chapter, it's 13 verses long. 2 Samuel 9, 1 to 13. And remember as I read and as you hear this and follow along in your copy of God's Word, this is the Word of God. 2 Samuel 9, 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. Let's pray once more. Our God and Father, we confess that if you had not revealed yourself to us in your word, we would be in the dark on so many things. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We confess also that your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. In fact, you call it the sword of the Spirit. We know that your Spirit takes your word and uses it in our hearts as we hear it. So we pray that you would, by your Spirit, convict us of sin Train us in righteousness, thoroughly equip us for every good work in and through your living word this morning. Give us open ears, we ask, in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. In, uh, in some fields and in some careers, uh, people will put together a list of their greatest accomplishments, You might see this when an athlete retires. There'll be some kind of montage, video montage of his greatest moments, the the greatest events, the, the, the greatest clutch hits or the greatest touchdowns scored in his life. 
Sometimes this happens in more mundane ways. Perhaps you're applying for a job and you put together a resume that seeks to highlight your, your accomplishments throughout your career, your, your skills, your successes, your, your great moments. I was reminded of this in a much more poignant and significant way. Even this past week, we were at a funeral and many of the speakers and particularly those afterwards who were who were reminiscing about the woman who had died, talked about the, these moments that they had had with her that made a, a profound impact on their lives, these, these great moments, these finest hours. I'm often struck in situations like that about, by the fact that we, we're not often very good at, at figuring out what our finest moments are. Sometimes the things that we do that seem very mundane actually turn out to be very meaningful and significant. And You've experienced that in the lives of other people and perhaps um, in your own life. Some people are defined by certain moments in their lives. Just a few months ago, my wife's grandfather turned 100, and one of the important moments that everyone spoke about when they talked about his life was his service in World War II, just a, a few years in his life, a long time ago, and yet they really defined who he was in a very significant way. This is the animating idea, of course, behind Winston Churchill's, one of his great speeches to the British people during the Second World War, when he said that history would judge this moment to be their finest hour. Now, I say all of this by way of introduction because in 2 Samuel 9, we have what I believe is recorded for us in the Scriptures as David's finest hour, as certainly his finest hour as king. Now, that might come as a surprise. When you think of the life of David, you might think of these great moments like his killing of Goliath, which is recorded for us in 1 Samuel, or his withholding judgment from Saul, or many other things that David does that are recorded for us in the Scriptures. But I, but I think that the author of 2 Samuel is intending to show us that this is David's finest hour. This is the moment where all the things that God had done in his life coalesced in this very significant series of actions he takes recorded for us in this chapter. Now, why do I say that? Well, if you were to outline the book of 2 Samuel from the moment when David is anointed or crowned king to the end of his life, what you would see is that there is this upward trajectory. Each chapter in the first chapters of 2 Samuel gets better and better and better until you reach 2 Samuel 11, where that great sin of adultery with Bathsheba is recorded for us. And then after that point in 2 Samuel, everything gets worse and worse and worse. It's a parade of horrors in David's life as the Lord works out his judgment. The Lord said to him, the sword will now never depart from your house. And in fact, that's what happens in 2 Samuel. But this is at the apex. This is at the top, right before that, that sin is recorded and things get worse and worse and worse. And I think that's intentional in the, in the work of 2 Samuel. I, I believe that this is the way that the Lord is intending to show us the significance of this event. So let's look at this together. Let's, let's look at what is recorded for us, what, what David does here in his finest hour. Now, what we see is that what David does, if we wanted to put it simply, is David here in this chapter is recorded as showing kindness to a helpless enemy. 
Now, the helpless enemy's name is Mephibosheth. He's introduced to us early in the chapter by description and then by name a little bit later on in verse 6. Why is this so significant? Well, look at verses 1 and 2. Look at how this begins. David's actions begin with his desire to show kindness to someone who is of the house of Saul. Now, that might not seem terribly striking, but it is when you consider it in light of the whole trajectory of David's life. Saul was David's great enemy in the second half of 1 Samuel. Remember, Saul was the one who was seeking to kill David. Uh, Saul was the one who was on the throne of Israel and made it his ambition to make sure that David never reached that throne, even though God had anointed him as the next king. And so most of the second half of 1 Samuel deals with David fleeing from Saul and David almost succumbing to Saul's wicked plans to kill him and David having to hide and to leave Israel and even go with the Philistines for a period of time. But what does David do here? What does he say in verse 1? Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. So David seeks someone out who is from the house of his enemy, from the household of his primary rival throughout most of his life. Well, secondly, we read this in verse 3, that the one that David intends to show kindness to is not only from the house of Saul, that is the house of his enemy, but in verse 3, when he asks further if there's someone from the house of Saul that he might show kindness, he read, he's, he's told by Ziba at the end of verse 3, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So in other words, David is selecting someone from his political rival, from his chief enemy, who also can't offer him any particular help in a military or an economic way. Now, we've, we've read earlier about how Mephibosheth became crippled in his feet. In 2 Samuel 4, we read that when Mephibosheth was five years old, his household received some very bad news and his nurse picked him up. And here's what the text says in 2 Samuel 4, as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. So from the age of five, Mephibosheth, this one of the house of Saul, this grandson of Saul, was, as it says, crippled in both of his feet. In other words, he needed to be helped everywhere he went. He couldn't perform the normal tasks that might be expected of someone who's going to serve the king in the king's household. So David has chosen someone from the household of his enemy. He's chosen someone who, is, who has no ability to help him, who's weak, and who's helpless himself. But actually, the text goes even further. Because in verse 4, we read that this Mephibosheth, David's enemy, is actually living far from David. The description may not be familiar. This town name is somewhat unusual. The town is referred to as Lodabar. It really means no place. Uh, so he's from this nowhere town. And when we locate it on a map, what we see, it's in the northern 
Transjordan region. So it's, it's far away from David geographically. In other words, David has to go to great lengths to draw this one from the house of his enemy and bring him to his table. He has to take him literally from nowhere to bring him into the household of the king. Now, Mephibosheth seems to recognize his situation. If you look at verse 6 and then again at verse 8, look at how Mephibosheth refers to himself here. Mephibosheth, when he's brought before David, immediately falls on his face before David. According to verse 6, he pays homage to David. And when David calls him by name, what Mephibosheth answers is, Behold, I am your servant. And then in verse 8, he even goes a step further and says, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? This is interesting, the way in which Mephibosheth refers to himself, because that phrase that Mephibosheth uses, I'm, I'm a dead dog before you, is actually a phrase that is used later on in 2 Samuel 16 as a curse against David's enemies. You see, Mephibosheth knows where he stands with respect to the king. He knows that he has no claim on the king's, uh, on the king's mercy. He has, he has no right to be at his table. As, as a matter of fact, in terms of his status and in terms of his ability, he, he should be the last person or among the last people to ever be seated at the king's table. But you see, that's exactly what David does. Look at verses 10, 11, and 13. Look at how David takes this enemy from far away who has no capability of his own and draws him to his household. In verse 10, it's described this way. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and you shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. In other words, what David does is he, he gives Mephibosheth all the lands that Saul had and then appoints people to take care of those lands so that Mephibosheth will receive the income from them. And then he goes on to say, after Ziba says he will do this in verse 11, we also read in verse 11, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And then in verse 13, in a kind of summary, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. From a political perspective, what David is doing is something that none of his advisors would have told him to do. In fact, they must have warned him against it. Because what David is doing is he's taking this rival family and he's, in a sense, reestablishing it. He's giving Mephibosheth all the lands that he had taken from Saul. He's giving them back to Saul's house. He's giving them back to Saul's house by way of Mephibosheth. And not only that, he's, he's, he's bringing him as close as possible to him, seating him at his table. What David is doing not only makes no financial sense or, or, or political sense or, or military sense, but, but actually, as we'll see, is going to have this multi-generational effect. We read in 1 Chronicles 8 and 9 about all the descendants of Mephibosheth, all of whom uh, were blessed abundantly because of David's acts of kindness. In fact, he, he turns around, we might say, the entire trajectory of Saul's house just in this one action. 
This is a question we have to ask ourselves after we come to terms with what David did in his finest hour. The question we have to ask ourselves is, why is it that David did this? Because the motivation for this action is as important to the writer of 2 Samuel as the action itself. It's not just that David does a ran, performs a random act of kindness here. No, what David does is driven by a very specific theological understanding. And that's why the writer considers it David's finest hour. Where did he get this idea? I think one of the key ways we can try to answer this question is by looking at David's own words. We see this in verse 1 and we see it again in verse 3. David uses a very specific Hebrew term. It's not easy to see in our English translations, but I'll read it to you again in verse 1 when he says, Is there still someone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And then if you look again at verse 3, the same word is used in English. The king said, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Now, what's David getting at here? Well, David is using a very significant term when he seeks out Mephibosheth. The term he's using is this Hebrew term chesed. It refers to covenant faithfulness, the covenant kindness of God. At the very least, we have to see in this chapter that what is driving David is a deep understanding of the importance of covenant faithfulness, both in his life and in the life of all of God's people. The reality of the covenant is deeply embedded in all of Scripture. And actually, it's vitally important to your understanding and my understanding of the God of the Bible. The reason for this is because the framework in which the Bible places the record of God's saving work is a covenantal framework. One of the great Scottish theologians of the 1500s, Robert Rollock, puts it this way, Now therefore we are to speak of the word or of the covenant of God, having first set down this ground that all the word of God, all the word of God appertains to some covenant. For God speaks nothing to man without the covenant. Now, David seems to understand that. And that's why this is driving David in this moment of great strength during his kingship. He understands that God speaks to man. God interacts to man. God is revealed to man in the Bible in the context of the covenant. J.I. Packer, a contemporary theologian, puts it this way very concisely. The gospel of God, he says, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the reason why we're here is not properly understood until it is viewed in a covenantal frame. He goes on to say, the word of God, what we're hearing, is not properly understood until it is viewed in a covenantal frame. And then he says something even broader. The reality of God is not properly understood until it is viewed in a covenantal frame. David seems to see that. He seems to understand that his whole life 
the whole matrix of his salvation, everything that God had done for him, everything good that had happened to him, was, was zeroing in on this notion of the covenant. What is a covenant? We need to know that in order to understand this chapter. And if, if Packer is right and if Robert Rollick is right, we need to know it to understand the whole Bible correctly. Well, there's one helpful definition of a covenant is that it's a, an agreement between two parties in which both make promises under oath. And once you see that, you realize that indeed all of the Bible does have this covenantal framework. God engages in the garden with Adam in a kind of covenant. In fact, it's called a covenant specifically. He makes a covenant with Noah. There's this glorious covenant made with Abraham, offering him land and and promising him a seed and blessing. And the sign of that covenant is circumcision. There's a covenant made with Moses. Oh, and then there's a covenant just two chapters earlier made with David himself. That surely must have been in David's mind as he engaged with Mephibosheth. God had taken David out of obscurity and anointed him as king and made a covenant with him and had lavishly given him all these great blessings. If we read further in the Bible, we see that even the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is explained in a covenantal way. Remember what Jesus says on the night in which he was betrayed. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. All the word of God appertains to some covenant. God speaks nothing to man apart from the covenant. And what we see is that David is reflecting here not only on the covenant that God has made with him, according to verse 3, the the covenant kindness of God that David now wants to show on a horizontal level to someone else. He's also reflecting on this horizontal covenant that Jonathan had made with him. He he refers to that back in verse 1. That had happened probably about 15 years before this moment. It's recorded for us in 1 Samuel 18. And we see there that Jonathan is the one who is the actor. He's the one who initiates, just as God is the actor with David in 2 Samuel 7. And it was against Jonathan's self-interest in a certain sense, because Jonathan would have been the natural heir to the throne, but he covenants himself with David. David had experienced many covenant blessings from God. And what he wants to do here is he wants to show covenant kindness to one who is far away from him, to one who is his enemy. Now, as we examine this covenantal situation, this, this covenantal relationship, this covenant kindness that David is showing, I want us to look in particular at three examples in this story. And first, and the most obvious one, is the example of David. You know, the Bible tells us that when we read the Old Testament, These things are written as examples for us. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 10. And the first example here is the example of David. David understood the covenant kindness that had been given to him by Jonathan, but ultimately by the Lord himself. And he knew that this covenant kindness that had been given to him was given to him that he might show the same kindness to others. We see this logic in the New Testament. 
We see this logic, for instance, in Ephesians 4.32. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, explains to us that great work of God in our salvation, electing us in Christ Jesus and bringing us to saving faith by the Holy Spirit, raising us to new spiritual life. And, and giving us this inheritance and these wonderful promises as children of God. And then what he says in Ephesians 4.32 is this with respect to the church. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, that kind of gospel logic is exactly what David is applying here. In, with respect to his relationship with Mephibosheth. God has blessed me so abundantly. God has richly shown mercy upon me in his covenant blessings. Now I need to do the same for one who is my enemy. This is the kind of grace-fueled obedience that the Bible commands us to have. If you're in Christ You've received so many rich blessings in Him. And the Bible says, we forgive one another as God in Christ forgives us. And like David's kindness, as it's reflected later on in Chronicles, we know that this this kind of outpouring of covenant kindness from us as individual Christians and from the church can have a multi-generational effect. We don't often know the effect that our kindness can have on others. One of the stories that I find most entertaining but also most stimulating is the story that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, tells in his autobiography. Spurgeon talks about his own conversion. He had been exposed to Christian teaching from a very young age. He read Puritan books, but but he wasn't born again. He, He didn't really know God in a saving way. Until one time in early January, at the age of 15, he was, he was trying to get to a meeting that, where, where there was going to be a, a well-known preacher preaching. It was a kind of midweek meeting. And, and he went there uh, through the snow. There was a snowstorm, and, and he entered this small little chapel. And the minister, who was supposed to be there, actually didn't make it. But there was a deacon there, and this deacon thought that these people should receive something, they should hear something. And so he read and repeated to them over and over the words of Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did that for just a few minutes for those few people who were gathered there. And the Lord used that, that, that moment of, of kindness, that moment of, of spiritual nurture uh, to bring Spurgeon to saving faith. Now, I'm sure that that deacon walked away thinking that the night was a failure, that he'd hardly done anything, and what he had done, he hadn't done very well. But of course, the Lord used that and used it in Spurgeon's life and therefore in the lives of many others. And I'm sure that all of us could tell a story somewhat like that. Someone said something, and it still sticks with you, and, and it spurs you on toward love and good deeds, as the writer to Hebrews tells us. I'm sure we could also repeat stories of things that people have said and done that work the other way for us. They still eat away at us. They still bother us. We still feel guilty about something that they've said or the cruelty still hurts just as badly as it did then. So one of the examples that we learn from this text is the example of David. 
May our thankfulness for the grace of Christ be like David's, not only in words, but also in deeds. That brings us, of course, to the ultimate example in this text, although not the last one that I think we should consider, but the most important one we will consider. Because when you pull the thread on this account of what David did from Mephibosheth, it's not hard to see what's happening here, and it's not hard to see how the Bible understands what's happening here. What David is doing in his final hour, or his finest hour, is acting out what God in Christ has done for us in an ultimate sense. You see all the pointers to that here in this text. David is seeking out his enemy. David is taking one who is crippled, who is unable to come, who is in a faraway place, really nowhere. And David is not only bringing him in, he's seating him at his table. In light of this, listen to what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 about what God's done for us in Christ. You see, at just the right time, Paul says, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then Paul goes on to say in that same passage, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Isn't this really what we see portrayed for us in the gospel? God, while we were still His enemies, reconciled us to Himself through the death of His Son, our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing us into a covenant of kindness with Him, seating us at His table, that we might enjoy fellowship with our King. The psalmist knew of this kind of reconciliation. In Psalm 30, the psalmist writes this, O Lord, You have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive. And then he goes on to say this to the congregation gathered around, Sing praise to the Lord, you His godly ones, and give thanks to His holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but the shout of joy comes in the morning. This portrait of the earthly King David in his greatest moment is a portrait really that points us to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice for us. So that brings us then to our third example. The example of Mephibosheth himself. Now I've mentioned this already, but Mephibosheth, as you know, instinctively knew that by all rights, he was a dead dog under the curse of King David. 
And I would hope, in light of the way in which this points us to Christ, that if you're a Christian, you instinctively know that deep in your bones about yourself. We stand in God's presence only by His grace alone. This is why humility is called for. The Apostle Paul puts it so aptly and clearly. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Imagine if Mephibosheth, at some point six months after being brought into David's house, began to somehow think that he deserved any of the covenant kindness he had received. Oh, it's clear from this text that he was the last to deserve it, the least deserving, unable to gain it for himself, an enemy of David's by birth. What do you have that you did not receive? Now, Mephibosheth, the example of Mephibosheth is that he did understand that. And he did remain humble. Even later on, when David is expelled from Jerusalem, Mephibosheth, although it looks as if to David for a moment, Mephibosheth might have compromised his loyalty. In fact, Mephibosheth remains loyal to David until the day he died. Because what is it that's said of us in the New Testament? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We're by nature children of wrath as the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, covenant kindness, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And what does Paul go on to say? And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. By grace you have been saved. Jesus enacts this during His earthly ministry when He brings tax collectors and sinners and has them seated at His table. You'll remember, of course, in Matthew 9 that the Pharisees are concerned about this. And Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've, called, I've come to call those who are sick and sinners. I want to say this, if you're not a Christian, if you don't have this kind of intimate relationship and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't know Him in this way, as your Savior and your King, the one who died for you while you were dead in your sins, then I want to, I want to plead with you based on this text. No one is so far removed or so much of an enemy that God cannot save. God, we see in the Scriptures, consistently saves helpless, spiritually crippled enemies. He calls everyone to repent and to bow the knee. Paul, when he stood up on Mars Hill, said, God commands all men everywhere to repent and to submit themselves to the, the Son of David, the great King, the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but no one is so far removed that God does not extend this invitation, that Christ does not say, whoever will come to me, I will not cast out, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the great 
call of the gospel. And that invitation is being made even right now through this text for any who would come to Christ in repentance and faith. You know, the the Bible actually ends with an invitation like this. In Revelation 22, among the last words on the last page of your Bible, it says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Come to King Jesus, the Bible says. And you, even you, will find rest today for your weary soul. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for this clear teaching from your word. We thank you for the example that your word gives us of your servant, King David. Oh, but we thank you even more for the way in which it points us to our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we today, who are reconciled to Him, be effective ambassadors on His behalf. Draw draw men to Yourself, we pray, even now. In Christ's name.